Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? Today I'm interviewing Jess Templeton, who is the director of the London School of Economics 100 course, I think. Um, and that's um, it's a really cool course that sort of gets students to sort of do things that they wouldn't normally do. And Jess, she's just a really, really fun lady and cool. Um, I sat next to her at an AI conf- conference by accident and somehow we just got talking and had lots of fun. And I was like, oh, this person's great. Maybe I'll like, interview her and then got a kind of like, oh, she's actually like someone of vague importance or like clearly done lots of stuff um so yeah we, we basically just sort of get along quite well and have lots of interesting things to talk about with each other and this is definitely quite a back and forth podcast like i probably say as much as she does and yeah we just explore each other's opinions on life and stuff and it's really cool and she knows a lot about um education and getting people to have more of a growth mindset so we do go into relevant things for the podcast it's not just us of having fun for an hour um so i hope you enjoy the podcast and learn as much as i did from jess and as much as she did from me and that you can take home some points to make your day a little bit brighter and on that note here is jess templeton and me talking and having fun so i grew up in seymour indiana which is a small town in southern indiana in the midwest and i from a very young age was really interested in teaching even when I was kind of a, an early teenager, I thought I wanted to be a professor. And I remember telling my guidance counselor at school, we had to have these sort of mandatory meetings where they asked us what our career goals were. And I said, well, I'm really interested in the environment. And in fact, when I was 10 years old, I had to give a presentation and I chose to do it on acid rain. So that, you know, my interest in the environment was uh, started very early. But I decided I wanted to be a professor and I wanted to work on the environment. And this is what I told my guidance counselor. And he said, well, you know, you can't just be a professor. <laughs> so then he actually gave me a, some brochures on being a, an environmental sanitation engineer, which basically mm. was not, not the direction that I was hoping to go in. <laughs> but I, I stuck with it anyway and um, went off to college at Guilford College in North Carolina, which is a liberal arts it's a Quaker school in Greensboro, North Carolina, with a strong focus on social justice. And I double majored in political science and sociology because I couldn't decide which area I liked better. And I thought, you know, in retrospect, you know, obviously in hindsight, we can kind of weave different parts of our life together to make a really coherent narrative. But I think that did sort of foreshadow my interest in interdisciplinarity. And that's kind of where I've ended up. I mean, being an academic in London, which I did not predict, but doing interdisciplinary work and trying to draw together the insights of different fields and work with students to, to do that as well. So that literally leads you all the way up to what you're doing now and then like building the course, having the ideas and stuff. Yeah. So in 2010, I was working on my PhD and I was approached by a colleague at LSE who told me that he, this was Neil McLean, and he was working with 
an academic here at LSE, Jonathan Leap, and they were putting together this course called LSE 100, and they were wondering if I would want to interview for a teaching position, and I, like a, a graduate teaching assistant role, and so I said yes, and that I thought it was just going to be maybe you know the last year or so of my PhD, and then I would move on to maybe a, a different university or something, and instead I ended up becoming a fellow, and then when Jonathan left, I stepped into sort of a caretaker role. And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, I ended up staying at LSE 100 and kind of, you know, this temporary role that started as just a, a graduate teaching post that was hourly paid and just sort of a part-time job ended up turning into a very long-term career. And now, this January, LSE 100 will be celebrating its 10th anniversary. Wow. And I have been part of it since the beginning, which is quite incredible. Yeah. yeah. And so I've really loved it. It's been, it has changed a lot in that time. And it's just been, you know, a series of really interesting and intellectually challenging experiences for me. So it's a good opportunity. I don't know. I've loved it. I've loved working with the students and with my colleagues around the school and constantly learning. It's sort of like, getting to continue being a student because you're constantly learning from what other people are are bringing you know when they're whether they're doing lectures for us or filming I do sort of get to be a permanent student and constantly learn new things which is yeah. nice yeah it's nice as in it's kind of a good philosophy on life anyway to think of yourself as a permanent student anyway yeah <laughs> absolutely one of those things when you kind of you first graduate you're like yeah I've done everything and like <laughs> yeah. quickly you brand new oh I don't really know that much about most things <laughs> kind of <laughs> That's exactly right. Constantly learn more about. It's nice. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it'd be kind of interesting to the, go back to the start of what made you pick up on acid rain as a 10-year-old and kind of write a speech about that. It's because it's kind of interesting, like, these days of how, what can we be doing to help, like, kids get more into the environment and these sort of things. And then, you know, there's a whole metaphor yeah. of stuff. But, yeah, what, why did you, like, pick up on that initially? I think I always loved being outdoors as a kid and my family used to spend a lot of time, you know, camping, hiking, things like that. We used to go to the Boundary Waters in Minnesota most summers for family vacations and I just, I loved it. I loved being out in a canoe. I loved hiking. I loved camping and I think I felt very at home and comfortable in the wilderness essentially and so I cared about it. I got very attached from a young age to kind of the outdoors and to the environment and started, I just, I cared a lot about what was happening. And at that time, acid rain was very much in the news because it was a major problem. And I got very concerned and decided to write a report about it, essentially. Cool. And then that just, you know, that kind of carried on. I think um, yeah. I'm, I'm really pleased that I was able to stick with that as a career path because that's definitely something I'm very passionate about, along with education. So I've been able to put mm. the two together in a nice way. Yeah. So do you think we should try and help kids experience more of the outdoors and sort of get them away from tech and things to like make them like the environment more? Yes. I mean, not necessarily getting people away from tech because that is kind of an increasing part of our lives in ways that are maybe good and bad. And so I wouldn't yeah, want to necessarily true. set that up against the environment yeah. necessarily, but I do think getting everyone, not just kids, but getting everyone outdoors more and giving people more opportunities to be outside and in nature and be a little bit more connected with the world around us, not be so cut off. But I think that's for everyone. Obviously, it's great to give kids that experience from a very young age. So it's just kind of a normal part of 
of their lives and who they are and they can develop the attachment or have the opportunity at least to develop the attachment in the same way that I did. But, but it's just as important for adults who've never experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's just kind of hard for them to relate to something that they're supposed to be protecting. They don't really know what it is. And sure they hear the whole time on like their phones on the TV that it's a bad thing, but like if you just live in the city yeah. anyway and it's hot or not hot one day, you don't really care that much. Whereas yeah. something to relate to you to feel a bit more of a thing. Yeah, yeah the whole absolutely. Tech issue. Of, I sort of I was having a conversation like last night with some guys that were all kind of starting starting to try and use like Facebook less and all these things. And like I've deleted all social media from my phone. But then I went for a run yesterday morning in Tel Aviv, where I kind of I just vaguely pointed myself towards the beach and then just ran along the beach. And I just left my phone behind because I wanted to swim in it later. And so I just yeah. like no tech at all. But it was really really nice. I just I didn't have anything on in my ears. I was just listening to my own thoughts and having ideas. I was like why do I need a phone all the time? It's kind of bonkers and really nice yeah. to step away from things. And yeah. It's, it's really nice. I think we all have to be very disciplined about that. And that's obviously, yeah. I think something a lot of people are kind of really working to control in their lives. Cause maybe we got a little mm. bit carried away at first and we all yeah, started yeah. realizing, Oh, we're having neck issues and <laughs> yeah, we're not yeah. connecting with the world around us. And it was, um, it's yeah. funny. We're thinking like maybe sort of six, seven years ago, we sort of felt proud almost of being on our phone. And like, you look at people that aren't on the phone, like, what is this person doing? They're wasting all their time. Oh, I'm writing emails. I'm doing this other stuff. Blah, blah, blah. I'm so cool. And now it's like the other way around. It's like, I'll look at everyone on the tube and be like, wow, these guys are all stuck to their phones. What idiots. I'm not on my phone. I'm thinking <laughs> myself. Blah, blah, blah. I'm so cool. And it's sort of gone complete flip. It's That's funny. Yeah. You know, I don't, I have been thinking about this a lot lately and I've been trying to be more disciplined about removing some of the social media from my phone because I would find like a lot of people, I think I would find myself just sort of mindlessly flipping from mm. Facebook to Twitter to the news and I would close an app and I would reopen it again immediately just without any thought. I would close Twitter and I'd reopen it. And I'd think, yeah, what yeah, am I doing? Like weird stuff in your brain that is sort of... Yeah, because you're not actually weird. engaging with it. You're just wasting time and distracting yourself with yeah, it. Not, yeah. So I have kind of removed all of that, but I think sometimes it's quite nice. I mean, I walk to work. It's about, for me to get to LSE, it's, it's about an hour and 10 minutes or so. And I listen to oh, podcasts cool. as I go yeah, yeah. and usually to and from, and it's so relaxing. It's such a nice part of the day. And mm. sometimes I listen to podcasts that are related to work and I get a lot of good ideas for, for LSE 100 and other times. I just listen to something that's just for fun, which is really nice as well. But either way, that's a really, I think that's a good example of how tech can be a nice part of the day and quite a, quite a yeah. useful part of my day. But then what I have to do is if I'm at home in the evenings and say I'm watching TV is then resist the temptation to watch TV and sit on my laptop, you know, online shopping or something, <laughs> you know, doing, just checking Twitter, you know, I'm just trying to be a little more focused on whatever I'm actually doing and I mean, if, yeah, yeah, if the show is boring enough that you can actually do two things at once, you probably shouldn't be wasting your yeah, time yeah, with you it to begin with. <laughs> anyway, and you kind of miss most of it, and it's kind of a bit pointless. It's like it we is, kind of and you kind of yeah. delude ourselves into thinking we can multitask on things when actually you can't. And it's, when you're walking, it's a, something that you've automated so much that it doesn't actually require your conscious thought. It's just subconscious. Right. You can listen to a podcast as well. Like, all you need to do is navigate yourself from like, home to work. It's not, it's not very hard. Whereas trying to watch something else is like either you concentrate on watching what this person is saying or you concentrate on your Twitter. You don't do both at the same time. It's like two things that you're not actually doing. Exactly. 
yeah yes. been, i've been going like i've been doing code with doing lots of asynchronous and synchronous work and like how the cpu only does one thing at a time and to make two things happen in your code at once and it's sort of quite meta onto like how the human brain works as in you can kind of do two things at a time if you're baking a cake you can put it in the oven and do some other stuff until it's finished and that's like asynchronous behavior but yeah you can't actually think about answers to two different math problems at the same time in your head like you focus it's just, it just doesn't work and right. but you think that you can multitask on so much stuff that you actually can't on and it's just a fact if you have like a two minute break because your computer's loading and you try and write emails like you're then going to just be crap at everything else you're doing afterwards because you've got your head half in your emails and it's just stupid. Yeah. So, well, yeah, and I think all of us have had that experience yeah. with answering emails where all of a sudden you're going down the rabbit hole like, and you kind yeah, of forget yeah. why you got on the email to begin with. You Definitely. know, you're doing all these other things. So. It's got like a million to do suddenly, <laughs> like swimming in your brain when you still have half an hour left of your current work that you're not going to focus on anymore because you're trying to think about two things and it's just like, it's bad. Yeah, yeah email's or you completely annoying. forgotten it because actually you're focusing on something else. Yeah, that's that's something I've deleted off my phone as well. Actually, is email. Which, um, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. When I first did it, it was like I'm going to do like this sort of like month long test and like write a blog about it or something like all these people do. And then I don't know after two weeks, I just forgot about it. It's just like oh, I just don't have email on my phone. It's really nice and like <laughs> just sort of part of my life really. And it's like yeah, I don't know why I had email on my phone in the first place. It's kind of annoying and. Wow. If I really I need to have an email or something, I, I've got a browser, I can go and look at it. Okay, cool. I can deal with that. But then I just don't have like, the facility to kind of constantly be there and be checking it. And yeah, it's just it's quite nice. Anyway. Yeah, that sounds like, no, that sounds like a really good practice. I don't think I am ready for that. Mm. <laughs> but I think that's a very sensible thing to do. And I also think it's really nice to be thinking about what things you don't need and kind yeah, of getting yeah. rid of them. So if you don't need to have access to your email while you're out and about then you know just take it off because yeah. then it's sort of mindless it's mindless time wasting so. yeah yeah just more to do's that aren't really your to do like someone else's and yeah you're just filling a lot of time with stuff yeah. that isn't that meaningful to you yeah definitely well anyway back to uh life and what you've been up to so you yeah. then um went to a quaker school like what does that entail exactly well, Guilford is one of a, a few Quaker schools in the U.S., a number of Quaker schools. And basically at Guilford, education is informed by Quaker practices. So there's a strong focus on social justice. A lot of the governance of the school is done according to Quaker principles of, say, consensus, um, respect. So some of the ways that these things came through, I mean, obviously all decisions were then taken by consensus. You know, I was on the student senate and we took all of our decisions by consensus and everybody had to agree and learn how to listen to each other and to kind of work out differences and things. One of the other practices was people would always pause. You were expected, if somebody else was speaking, after they had finished to let their words settle and then you would speak. In the classroom, it was quite interesting because all of the, of the room, there was no lead. Everybody was sort of equal within the circle. And uh, that's something that I really appreciated and it kind of imported to my work at LSC where possible. And everybody was on a first name basis because there's a strong emphasis, as I said, on equality. And so basically it was about sort of observing other people and seeing what Quakers refer to as the inner light within people. But fundamentally, I think for people who are not Quaker, that can translate into kind of seeing the goodness in other people and respecting other people for what, who they are and what they're bringing to you and just kind of absorbing that and, and res respecting that 
Yeah, sounds really nice. That to, to be fair. Nice. Yeah, it was lovely. I mean, I'm not I'm not Quaker, and I I loved it. I thought it was a really really nice way to move through the world. And I mean, I think, you know, I I certainly wouldn't. I'm not an expert on Quakerism, and would not be the right person to tell you what it means yeah. to be Quaker or anything like that. But those those practices really informed the way that the community operated at Guilford in a very productive and healthy way, I think. And uh, I think that those provide some really useful lessons that can be kind of employed by lots yeah. of people, whether or not they're coming at it from a Quaker perspective or religious perspective, but just how to kind of be with other people in a very constructive and positive way mm. and, and negotiate differences and things. Yeah, I think the world can instantly get a lot nicer when you have the approach of trying to explain whatever someone's just done is them coming from a point of like doing good and just trying to like do their best rather than trying to explain what someone's just done is them like trying to hurt you or like be a problem like whatever they're doing you kind of you see someone being stupid you're like oh this person's an idiot or they cut me up because they're like a twat and it's like okay yeah. if you try and explain it as something good is because they cut you up in traffic because they're like they're just about to have a baby or like they just sort of drop coffee in their lap you're like suddenly you're like oh <laughs> this is quite yeah. funny or like I help someone not crash whilst about to deliver a baby and you're suddenly like, oh yeah, I'm a hero. This is nice. You feel great <laughs> about life. And it's just as likely yeah. as that person was an idiot. So why not explain it in a nice way? And Yeah. Sort of or I mean, and I guess a less, I mean, it would be really fun if people were about to have a baby. And, yeah. You know, yeah all that scenario. <laughs> but also, I mean, all of us lose kind of concentration sometimes and cut people mm. off in traffic or just bump into people on the street or do something that's really annoying to someone else and it's totally unintentional. Yeah, so if the rest of us are kind of not assuming the worst about people and just have a little bit of patience, it probably would make the world a better place. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, yeah, I didn't know Quaker was really about that. That's the whole thing. I've never really how much as I heard that like, Quaker was kind of weird, and that's about as far as my knowledge went, which um, is <laughs> a bit naive, <laughs> oh. I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, the Quakers have a really fascinating history in the UK and the mm. US. And we're very involved in, for example, um, abolition of slavery in the UK and the US. And yeah, they have a very, very interesting history that has really focused on social justice. And yeah, definitely worth exploring. I probably yeah. won't be giving any lectures on Quakerism anytime soon. I would defer to other people for that. But, That's fine. Um, but it is really an interesting, it's a very interesting approach to life, certainly. Definitely yeah. worth exploring. Cool. And then, so you're studying sociology and economics? When I was an undergrad, I studied sociology and political science. Right. So, it, no, that's okay. Yeah. In the U.S., um, you have to choose a major normally. And so I double majored in sociology and political science. And then I did a minor in women's studies, um, cool. which was Topical. very interesting. Yeah. I yeah. Just out here now when um, how some of come to the, for the weekend at uh, one of the girls' houses, and she's like 25, but it's part of the, the community of where like the women, like they cook and they're not really allowed to have boyfriends or anything, they just have to get married. And then like they go to a new household and she's sort of kind of fine with that. And I'm like, but wow. I mean, do you not maybe want to like move in with your boyfriend or something and see if he's not a dick first before you get married? and. and <laughs> All these kinds of things, but like the men are allowed to do whatever the hell they want, and you're like, what? And it's quite weird as well because if she's, she's kind of like a kid that actually is sort of naughty in school. She doesn't like accept like guidelines, but like this big meta guidelines, she just doesn't question at all. But like things like teachers, she's just like answer back and be like a naughty kid, and you're like, how is like someone that's sort of 
if you're in Mean Girls, you'd definitely be one of the people. And like, it's kind of funny that someone she that- would, She would have been one of the Mean Girls? Yeah, yeah, she's definitely like the cool kid, like doing what she wants and sort of stuff. And funny. yeah, you just sort of yeah. see that the way that people grow up, it's sort of so much like the environment and like, so then she's got the same views as someone else, but it's completely different what she's doing with her life and like what she accepts and just sort yeah. of odd. But yeah. Isn't that true for all of us, though, in some yeah, ways definitely. where we, we know what's safe to rebel against and what, mm. what is just not, and we would never cross those lines, I guess. Yeah. So, and it, it might look quite, yeah, I think it often would look quite funny to somebody from the outside. And, mm. Yeah. Or, or even to us looking back when we've kind of changed yeah, and gone yeah. with our lives and had different experiences. And we think, oh, gosh, why was I so bothered by that at the time? And now it's, yeah, yeah it's that's fascinating anyway. Kind of fumbling about like, traveling and stuff and you kind of think ah why do we take so much of these things so seriously when other people have like complete other things seriously or yeah i've been reading some like really nice books that sort of tell stories of families over like a whole hundred years and like stuff that like completely like the absolute huge focus of like toil of their point of their life in one generation next generation they don't even care at all about and it all seems they're all arbitrary and pointless what they were fighting for and stuff like like 10 years ago and you're like yeah we get so concerned about things that actually probably aren't that important and stuff and like whatever we're doing now is probably kind of crazy sometime soon. Yeah, same as like I was saying, like five years ago, I was like, yeah, I got a phone, I do stuff. And now I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be on my phone. <laughs> for people. Yeah. Thanks. Which, which books have you been reading? Um, so yeah, the ones that it was really good like that, there's worth not thousand Planted sons, a different one by Callie, the guy that wrote the kite run. Okay. I can't remember. Uh-huh. He's done one where it sort of follows generations. That's quite long and nice. Then another one, um, Pachinko. It's about like some North Koreans that emigrate to Japan before the wars, but then it kind of follows up all the way to the modern day. But it's yeah. like some crazy stories of like hardship and stuff that they go through and yeah. like, the things that they need to focus on at different points in their lives and how like it's really depressing and like hard hitting story, but it's like <laughs> super fascinating at the same time. And yeah, like, written. oh, it yeah. sounds really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of me for sure. Yeah, so back to women's studies and things. So what sure. are you kind of studying about that? Is that like history and evolution of like women's rights and things or like stuff in the yes. day? So, oh, it was kind of the gamut, really. Because it was a liberal arts school, we had to take courses in a lot of different departments. So I took courses that were related to, that fulfilled my women's studies minor requirements. And I remember the... Department of Philosophy and Department of Religion, Political Science, Sociology. Um, I was kind of all over the place with that. And so, yeah, we did study a lot of the history of different movements related to women's rights, which is very interesting, and, and up to what was kind of happening at the time. Yeah. And, yeah, it was fascinating. It was really challenging, and I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed a lot of the different things that we studied have continued to inform my thinking now and what we do. And I have a lot of colleagues who are in the Department of Gender Studies here at LSE. And obviously, you know, the research has moved on, times have changed and, you know, the kinds of, some of the issues continue. (laughs) You know, there's a, there's a very strong through line. The more things change, the more they stay the same in a lot of Mm. ways. But a lot of the people that I read are now in college. That was 20 years ago. So a lot of them are people that we would refer to, but the research has definitely moved on and our understanding of issues has changed since then and it's really fun to continue to get to touch on that a lot in my conversations with colleagues here at LSE 100 so cool 
Yeah, it'd be nice to go a bit into specifics of like, yeah, so what are the kind of things that have stayed the same and that? Well, that's funny. I think I remember when I was a kid, I was definitely raised in a strongly feminist household. And I remember having a t-shirt when I was a kid that said, girls can do anything. And so from a very, very young age, my mom was always giving me this message of, you know, equality and, you know, freedom to kind of make your own choices and be whoever you want, regardless of what other people tell you you can be. I one of my favorite books when I was a kid showed it was just a little boy and a, a girl. And, you know, the, the boy would say, okay, I'm going to be the doctor and you can be the nurse. And then she'd be like, no, I'm going to be the doctor. <laughs> I'm going to be a doctor too. Or I'm going to be the pilot and you can be the flight attendant and so on. It was just sort of, you know, challenging the traditional gender roles. And then when I was a little bit older, I wanted to go to soccer camp and on the the day football camp, I guess the day that it started, I realized I was the only girl and it was the worst thing in the world for me. I was probably 12 or 11 or 12 or something. And I was just like, how am I the only girl? And I thought, surely I'm just going to go home because this is not for girls. And my mom made me stay. (laughs) I had to tough it out and be the only girl at the soccer camp. But I think, you know, so that, those were, I know that was, that was tough. That was not the easiest experience. But I mean, the fact is so much of that has not changed. I mean, you would think, gosh, that was, you know, a long time ago now. And now, I don't know, we we have these expectations. I think that, that there is all of this freedom and there's this choice, but there's still so many structures in society that direct people's choices and keep Mm. girls from feeling confident about maybe going into sports or go, you know, certain kinds of sports and things that are still for boys and still for girls, which I, I kind of hate. To say sorry this feels a bit floofy but I don't know I mean I'm just thinking about how you know growing up with a very feminist mother and genuinely feeling like okay I can go off and I, I can make all of these choices and you know there are no differences between women and men and I can make whatever choices I want and in fact then I got into the working world and for the first time encountered actual sexism and actual discrimination in an organization where you know, the, the women in the office were given a lot of the kind of administrative work to do. And the men in the office were given the meetings over on Capitol Hill, you know, even delivering things to Capitol Hill, even delivering packages and things. The guys in the office were always given the more exciting roles that were more front facing. And the women were given a lot of tasks that were more in the office and sort of behind the scenes. And, and that was in a very progressive organization, uh, which I will not name. <laughs> so it was very left-wing and, and, and liberal. And it, we still encountered that sort of discrimination. And I think, you know, as I progressed in my career, I did encounter over and over or have encountered many different kinds of kind of very casual sexism. I mean, I don't think a lot of it is overt as it used to be when my mom was a kid, for example. And so when I was in college, I thought everything had changed. And then I got into the working world and I saw it had not. And this is something I see with my students a lot who also think everything has changed. And when they're learning about discrimination and sexism and things like that, they don't often take it seriously because they haven't yet encountered it. Not, not mm-hmm. everyone, lots of people. I mean, LSE has you know, got students from big student body. So I certainly don't want to speak for everyone. But a lot of times when you're 1920 you haven't really fully encountered yeah, it yet yeah, well not not on your own not yeah. as a kind of individual where you're having to go out and maybe fight your own battles and make choices and I think when people get into the the working world that's when they start to encounter it and so I just hope that in LSE 100 and other 
places in, in education that students have started to think about this, you know, regardless of, of their backgrounds or interests and things like this or their degree programs. I hope they've started to think about it so that they're a little more aware and conscious and can kind of stand up against it when they're making decisions either for colleagues or as leaders or, mm. you know, in their entrepreneurs. So whatever career steps they're taking, they're actually going to be a lot more aware of it and kind of standing up against it. Yeah, it's one of those things that is really hard to kind of recognize as it's happening until sort of later and like kind of really know, oh, this is the time when I'm supposed to do that thing that I didn't do and stuff. And yeah. it's sort of a bit of a weird one. But um, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting the way you're talking about like the way things sort of stay the same. And certainly in, we also kind of had the same problem with like climate change. We kind of just felt that, like, if we're talking about it, we kind of know and like the problem should be being dealt with because of, you know, we both grew up hearing about it and thinking, yeah, 20 years time, something's going to be happening. And like now 20 years later, we're here being like, so guys, we just spoke about it for the last 20 years and no one did anything. I mean, yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we've known about the problem of climate change since what, 1847 or something. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, we've known about, we've known about this issue. The scientific community has known about this issue for a very, very long time. And, you know, kind of getting people to actually change and to take responsibility for things is really difficult and to make decisions that are sort of, you know, prioritizing the long term or the medium term over the short term can be very yeah, difficult yeah. for people. Definitely stuck yeah. in business. But yeah, as a um someone doing like political science and economics and stuff, have you got any like yeah. wider ideas about ways that like, this can be changed and dealt with then? Yes. <laughs> That's a huge yeah, question. Our economy yeah. to make us, uh, not fail at this stuff would be nice. Sorry? Some way to like engineer our economy to um actually succeed in these areas would be uh, quite useful. But, you know, I don't know how we re-engineer the economy. For me, as a political scientist, I do think, I believe very strongly in collective action, obviously. So I think we need to take individual responsibility for our choices and the impact that we're having on the environment. And there's a very interesting debate that you'll hear a bit in the political science community about whether we should be focused on individual action or should we be focused on the more macro level issues, you know, should we be focused on consumers or should we be focused on producers, corporations and things? And I mean, I, I think the answer is we need to be focused on all of that. And so we need to be voting with our feet, so to speak, when we're making decisions about shopping and, you know, what we purchase and what we invest in and all of that. We all need to be taking personal responsibility for that. But we also need to be putting pressure on producers and companies to be more environmentally responsible and to be prioritizing some of these things we do, that we really care about. I also have a lot of faith in international institutions, and I believe these are really important. So I do believe that initiatives, I mean, it's not going, you know, the UN is not going to solve this problem for us. Certainly, it's not going to be the full answer. But I do think this, you know, establishing international agreements and things, this is a big part of the solution. I think it's really important to have a place where people can kind of come together and work out differences and actually establish laws and agreements and things that set standards for behavior and hopefully motivate, mm. motivate behavior within states and also make it possible through technology transfer and financial assistance and things for other places to, to kind of implement specific actions related to environment you know, whether it's climate change or other forms of environmental degradation. Yeah. Do you feel like in 50 years time, we're going to look back like, what the hell are we doing? We're so bonkers. And so do you think 
something like carbon tax is possible sometime soon? It seems like one of the kind of major solutions that kind of would make everything a lot easier. I think it's going to get easier to do these things as we get further along the road with yeah, climate change. The climate just have to get worse for us to actually really take these things seriously because it's already like certainly the last few years it's got a lot more like notability than people taking it seriously because they're like wait we're kind of having a record-breaking like heat again and it's like winter and, and summer and like people are kind of like oh wait this climate change thing is actually happening now so but yeah. it doesn't have to get more worse for us to actually go like yeah you know what yeah we have to have a tax and we have to be really serious about this or yeah and I, I think i mean i think unfortunately <laughs> i mean i think a lot of people are motivated to take precautionary action on things and they see problems coming down the road or they you know read the scientific literature or accept the arguments that are being presented to them by you know scientists and science communicators and they're willing to take action but there's so many people who aren't because it contradicts their interests and it it makes them uncomfortable or they it's going to cause massive changes that they're not really willing to accept so yeah i think the the worse it gets the more likely we are to take more dramatic action. So whether that's with carbon taxes or other sorts of things. I mean, mm. I also think it's really exciting to see some of the young people who are really demanding action and are, are mm. so vocal and so effective at actually mobilizing interest around issues of climate change. You know, Greta Thunberg and these and other youth activists. That's so exciting. So I'm really optimistic about where that's yeah, yeah. going and the kind of contribution that that's, and I, I'm not suggesting at all that you know the youth need to provide the answer because all of us have to take responsibility and do different things but i think that's such an important contribution to the work that's being done that's really really exciting yeah i mean it's in technically everyone's interest really it's just sort of yeah. trying to make it and people understand that it's in their bigger interest than it is sort of short-term things but then we live in a world where many people live in the credit card debt and like do lots of other things they shouldn't be doing, like smoking and eating the wrong things and stuff. And <laughs> can we really sure. get them to make the right decisions about everything else? Seems like a big ask, but I feel like there's I mean, a, but should a we? I think the idea that there's anybody who has all the right answers is mm. is, is questionable. So I think we need to be selective about yeah. when we're going to say, okay, I really want this action to be taken. And I guess for me, one of the things that I take from Guilford and also take from my experience at LSE very much is the importance of being able to listen to other people and engage in kind of a constructive dialogue or you know to really hear what people are saying and to allow yourself to be challenged because if we can do that then we can actually take meaningful action but if we go into a conversation thinking I know exactly what should mm -hmm. be done and if you'll just listen to me yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're not going to get very far I mean that never works and yeah, yeah. very it's rarely works like I spent um, the first half of this year working on oil rigs and it was so fascinating uh -huh. as someone that comes from like more of the environmentalist people where we just like hate them but no one's ever even spoken to someone that works on the oil rig and stuff so actually be in the middle of the whole thing and seeing what people are doing like learning how it works and the problems that they're facing and stuff is so much more useful than just sort of telling them that they're complete dicks and like not really learning what the hell's going on there. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a brilliant example of exactly the kind. I mean, we're not all going to go work on an oil rig, yeah, obviously, yeah. but you know, engaging with people who have interests or understanding or life experiences that are very very different from your own. Yeah, and yeah. really and trying to say stuff to them from their angle and actually sort of yeah. actually present things that are actually useful to them rather than just telling them that they're being bad and like that's oh. it. Like, like nobody likes gonna, to be told like, that. They're not going to listen to you either at all. No, no. Say, hey, by the way, actually. I think 
possibly the industry with the biggest interest in like doing carbon offsetting and planting trees is the oil industry because they want to continue for another 50 years. They've got all this oil that they can't keep on producing in this current climate. But if they were the biggest planter of trees, they could actually carry on doing this. They'd never need to have a carbon tax if they just like tax themselves now and like had this. And it's like, okay, the person that's actually going to make the most money out of planting trees is the oil company. And like actually being able to tell them that is sort of quite cool. Is in, hey, you want to be really rich? You can save the environment. Whereas telling them that like, oh, you guys are shit. You've got to stop. You've got to stop everything. We hate you. And like, doesn't really do anything for them at all. But telling them they can get richer suddenly sounds much nicer. So that's an interesting example but yeah, I mean that's that, that, stupid but like no, I mean <laughs> no it, it's very interesting I mean it's yeah if it, we kind of applied the ideas of principled negotiation where we're kind of trying to find ways you know we're really listening to what other people have to say what what other people have to say and identifying and understanding other people's interests and then trying to work together to to achieve a, an outcome that's better for everyone then yeah, we're in a much better position. But that requires all of us to not go in with, you know, yeah, sort of yeah. this idea of absolutely what you want, what you're going to impose on the other person, essentially, yeah, yeah. or the other party. It's critical. So yeah. That's a life skill, not just, yeah, yeah. Not just for business people, not just for, for like, uh, UN negotiators. Marriage and things, I think. Is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Anyway, we've got as far as your degree. <laughs> and, and then okay. yeah. then you went on to doing a PhD and then getting into the LSE 100 stuff. So yeah, you kind of just went out a bit on a limb of just like maybe going to London and getting these things. So what was going through your head at the time? What made you decide that? Well, I actually came to London to do my master's degree in public policy. So I left Washington DC after a couple of years of kind of entry level. I mean, you know, I was like any good undergraduate political scientist in the US, I tried to move to DC afterwards. And, and I really, it was a great experience, really, really formative and challenging. But to progress, I knew I had to get a master's degree. And I was really ready for another adventure. And I applied to LSE on a whim. I didn't think I would get in. I mean, it was, it was sort of inconceivable to me that someone like me from you know small town in the midwest would go to london to study that just seemed Mm. kind of outrageous and i just thought well put in an application and see what happens and i remember telling my dad about it and he was kind of laughing and i was laughing (laughs) and i was like well you know (laughs) we didn't take it very seriously and then i got in and that was such a shock and then i was like oh no now i have to go to london for a year that's terrifying but i i did i did go and i studied public policy and public administration at LSE. And I loved it. I loved LSE. I loved London. I loved the very international community that is here. And I wanted to carry on. And I wanted to, I had always wanted to do a PhD. And I think I'd always, since I was a teenager, I had known that I was interested in doing a PhD. And then I thought, well, I would really like to do that in London. That would be amazing. So I took a couple of years and did other things. I volunteered for an environmental charity and did a variety of things. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went I went back to LSE and started my PhD. Just whilst we're on the topic, so what does the volunteering for an environmental charity entail exactly? Was just like a random year of like, hey, let's do something different. Which one yeah. was it? Well, it was partly about just staying in London. I I did not have <laughs> I had reasons to want to stay in London and yeah. I did not have a work visa. So you're not a saint so... after all. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, and well, I didn't have a, I did not have a work visa, so I thought mm. volunteering was a good way to go, and that was really interesting and fun. But I also, in the middle of all of this, I had been in North Carolina, and I kind of just by chance ended up working for a commercial real estate company and I did that to save money so before I came to London to do my master's and then for several months after my master's when I was trying to get back to London or figure out how to get back to London I uh, was working for a commercial real estate company in North Carolina which was totally random that would have been 2000 and 2002 all right so it was Guess before like, the financial crisis <laughs> no it was before did you the financial it coming <laughs> i did not i did not see it coming and i know that that was quite painful but the mm. the company i worked for i'm still i became quite good friends with the people that worked there and i'm still in touch with them and they they survived <laughs> they did survive it but that was also a really great experience i mean that was kind of unexpected and not something i ever would have aimed for i was doing it just to make money as much money as I could in the shortest amount of time to save money to go to London and then to go back to London. And I absolutely loved it. And I learned so much. And I, that taught me a good lesson about, you know, sort of being open to unexpected experiences and possibilities because you never know what you're going to really like. Yeah. Yeah. It's another thing really important to like do some different stuff as whilst you're young and just try some different things in life. Cause then you, you really understand if you do go back to doing the same thing you were doing before, you kind of, you'd like, you feel really safe and like, this is why I'm doing it because you yeah. know what is worse and things. And then you also have just like other ideas around it as in like, in any yeah. kind of field. If you just only learn about that field, you can't really make cross analogies to other stuff. Mm. But yeah, it's in, it's talking about like the people that have good ideas in any kind of field is either really young people that just completely question everything of how it's done or people that have had experience in a different field beforehand that come and then they're kind of able to apply like different ways of thinking into like this other model and sort of like the yes. cross side of things is like where the best ideas come from so yeah. if you do want to like be useful then it's generally really good to just have some different life experiences that you can kind of put together oh absolutely so, yeah I mean, I think for all of us, like just really trying to explore as broadly as possible and, and get those different life experiences and be open to other people who have very different life experiences. That's so interesting. It makes life so rich. And it also makes, if you're trying to make policy, for example, the strongest policies are not going to come out of a group of people who are like-minded necessarily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the most effective policies are not going to come out of that group anyway. So, oh, so that's interesting. So do you know talk about with your students are you helping people like understand how to create policy and things to some extent we do that in LSE 100 I mean we've been trying to get students to think about how I mean fundamentally I think university should be a time in which students are taking risks and are learning how to learn right I mean you don't have the your knowledge does not your kind of learning development does not end when you mm. have your degree that's just the beginning and so i think in university we should just be getting the chance to be challenged and to kind of identify the strengths that we have the things that we're interested in to some extent and learning how to pursue those for the rest of our lives you know so how do you think critically about issues how do you what are some tools for analyzing complex problems and so what we do in lsc 100 is have students investigate different social science perspectives and apply those to real world problems. And so in doing that, we sometimes ask them to, to write a policy brief because that would ask them to sort of summarize a problem, 
you know, analyze aspects of it and suggest possible solutions and hopefully evaluate those solutions and start to recognize the limitations of those solutions. And doing that from an interdisciplinary perspective is useful because a lot of times if you go in, you know, as an economist or as a, a political scientist or an anthropologist, you're going to see the issue from one way through one lens. And you really need to have those other perspectives so that you understand the nuances of the issue and can think about what happens, especially related to policy. Um, when you're talking about implementation, what might go wrong? You know, why might this brilliantly conceived plan not quite work? And you might not understand that if you're only looking at things from a political science perspective, but if you bring in a sociologist or a mathematician or you know, somebody with a different form of expertise, they'll understand the problem differently and see different issues and possibilities. Yeah, that's no, quite fascinating. I certainly think that like, the whole learning how to learn thing is so important and it's, yeah. it seems quite ironic that you spend so much time in school learning but then you never get taught how to learn properly. You're sort of just doing the thing in front of you and never actually sort of stepping back and sort of being told how to do the thing that you're doing the whole time. And That's right. Yeah, I'm literally just going through a course at the moment on, on Coursera called Learning How to Learn. And like, oh, how interesting. Like, oh my God, why did I not do this when I was 10? I mean, what the hell? Why do I need to learn this now? And Oh, I'd be quite interested in doing really that course. Good. I wonder what they have to say. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I think you'd really, really like it. Just the way that you kind of form memories and make associations. And like what I kind of just spoke yeah. about with like getting the different experiences was sort of part of that course. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to look back on the life and sort of talk about like, you know, the way you kind of explain the things that you've done and sort of it kind of makes sense afterwards. And some of it is like, oh, yeah, I have actually done some of these things right. And other things are like, oh, yeah, I totally wasn't doing that. And like, yeah. it's quite good to be like, oh, I can do this so much better now suddenly. And Yes. I'm out here and working with this code school. I'm sort of learning to code, but I'm also teaching a lot of the time. But but it's really useful for me as in trying to explain to people that don't speak good English, like complicated code problems and like Mm. explaining it in a way that they can understand. Because I sort of have this information in my head that I kind of understand enough for me to be able to do it by myself, but I can't actually explain it to someone else. So I have to like create analogies for them that they can like grasp and like but I have to do so much more mental effort to actually turn this in this mess of like stuff that Sam understands into like nice things that the world can understand. And it makes my, my knowledge so much better. And it's like, Uh-oh. Oh yeah, I should really have been teaching more of everything I've ever done so far in my life to actually understand what I'm doing better. And so that's like another thing that you should definitely do more of when you're learning and stuff. And it's nice yeah. that I'm suddenly doing it and but I'm, I'm having a lot more fun doing the teaching because I feel like I'm oh I'm actually getting better at this now whereas before it was like yeah. oh it's just slowing me down when I could be getting better at coding and suddenly I'm more of like it flipped it in my mind to be like shit this oh. is the best thing I can be doing right now is like telling this person that doesn't understand the stupid thing in like simple mm-hmm. English how this works it's like wow so it just makes you feel so much happier oh that's I completely relate to that and I think pretty much any teacher you speak with would tell you that they learned so much from the process of teaching and also just communicating and discussing with other people. So, I mean that, you know, I learned so much from all of my classes when I go in and, you know, I'm in a class with 15 or 30 students or something. I learned so much from the questions that other people ask or the insights that they have. I see issues in different ways. And, and also, as you say, that process of like figuring out how to communicate it makes you realize you know, maybe you don't understand it quite as well as you thought you did. And mm. actually working through that, figuring out how to communicate it really helps you learn it. And so yeah. a lot of times in, I think in a lot of universities, they, in classes, they'll employ like peer learning techniques, because if you're teaching, if students are teaching each other, 
then they're going through exactly that process that you've just described and really getting to grips with the concept because they're trying to explain it to somebody else. And that's so critical for, mm. for actual learning. Yeah, yeah, they talk a bit about like a, illusions of competence and when you're never like challenged or anything, you can kind of just <laughs> lie to yourself that you're really good at it. And like you can yeah. read the same book again and like, yeah, I understood that book and I understood it a second time. But actually yeah. it's not the same, but like, can you write out what was in that book and explain it to someone? Like, oh, yeah. ah. <laughs> suddenly it's yes. a lot more challenging and actually like makes you question what you're telling yourself about how good you are at something. And, and then, oh, yeah. Yeah, then other people's questions. It's so interesting to see like what they interpret it as compared to what you interpret mm -hmm. it as. And, and yeah, it's, yeah. Really, it's really nice. Yeah, anyway, cool, cool tangent. <laughs> no, I guess that, that leads nicely into the fact that you, you are doing a lot of teaching now. And um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of cool. And yeah. I would definitely say you should try the course for, I think, yeah, it's, I feel like I will. That's very have, like, interesting. gone through the course just to sort of, I think it would just change the way you do things a bit. Yeah, that sounds really good. Sounds yeah, great. Yeah. Then, in general, I guess I kind of want to talk a bit more about like political science, sure. and because yeah, something that I just never really found following politics that interesting. Because uh, it's sort of like it's not something I felt I could really ever do anything about, if you know what I mean. Mm, and yeah. it's sort of like, well, I can watch it and get annoyed or like complain about it and these are all useless things for my life why don't I just ignore it and like I can carry on doing something useful or like building a business to like deal with a problem like just knowing what's going on seems yeah. unhelpful but as I'm getting older I'm starting to think like okay maybe politics is a bit more important and you can kind of actually change people's own thoughts when you have some thoughts to give on it whereas if you just yeah. don't listen at all you're kind of kind of wasting your time on anyone else's so yeah yeah, and that basically introduces the fact that I was wanted to know more about politics, basically. So it's a bit of a ramble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Anyway, so as someone that's been like a bit more naive on like the politics side of things, what do you mm -hmm. think is the stuff that I should know more about when it comes to political science? And what, what does the term mean for a start? Is it just like scientific analysis of how policies come to be? Is it what, well, it's, yeah, it's basically the, it's a rigorous analysis or study of politics, of, of political systems, of policymaking, you know, all different aspects of politics. And then, of course, within political science, there are lots and lots of subfields that people might study depending on what they're interested in. So I think, you know, for you or for anyone, I think we do need to be, whether or not we're looking at this as academics or as people, entrepreneurs or just, you know, citizens, I think we do need to be fairly informed about what's going on in the, in the world. But I think it's also fair to pick the things that you're particularly interested in. You know, I think you're very motivated by the environment and so am I very interested in that. And so I spend a lot of time kind of following environmental news and I mean you can't do it all that that's quite yeah. overwhelming and, and can be quite distressing actually if you're trying to keep up with everything but yeah I think another thing I find is in, like I listen to the news about my country but then like why do I listen to the news about my country as in there's like millions of countries that all have got important stuff going on why am I so attached to that one but then like trying to follow like the stuff that's going on in Germany when I'm traveling with my friends who are German I'm just like oh it's okay and, and then you like you meet your mate that's Italian they want to talk about all their politics you're like I just, I just don't know, even know who, who is the leader of Italy. I don't know the political parties or what's going on. And it's just like, there's <laughs> yeah. so much stuff I just really have no idea about. And it kind of gets a bit overwhelming. So. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's actually something academics study as well. So in the field of media and communications, there's a lot of work done on why, why mm. we focus in countries. Like, why do we, um, 
focus on our own countries, where do we draw the boundaries or our own regions and things like that. And we get very interested in the things that are just in our area and we become then very attached and these things, the people in our areas seem to be more real to us and have more meaning than, than things that are far away. Yeah. For yeah. Example. And so yeah. there's quite a lot of academic work on that topic. And, but I mean, I think that's very normal and that's kind of, you know, what's around us. We are interested in the, th- the things that are close to home that we can relate to. And, but it's good to obviously mm. it's good to be, have a more global perspective and to be yeah. a little bit disciplined about that. So. Definitely. So yeah. it's funny being out here in Israel, I was talking to them, the guys about problems and they just thought Britain's fine. And then, we talked about some different things that were going on for a while. And then at some point I mentioned like, oh, and Brexit and they, no one had a clue what I was talking about. And I'm like, oh, wow, really? You don't know what Brexit is? They're like, no. And I tried to explain <laughs> the term of like wow. Britain exit to putting them together. And they're just like, no, what, what, what who? <laughs> what? <laughs> had a different new prime minister? Funny. What? And I'm like, oh my God, how do you yeah. not have a clue about this? And this is sort of, just seemed like the world must know about it, but apparently not. And these are like intelligent yeah. people and, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. They don't follow it at all, but I mean, I guess they've got like a lot of their own politics going on with the whole like West Bank and Palestine and crazy shit. And you're like, okay, I guess maybe that's important for you. And I have no idea about it either. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. It's sort of maybe it isn't as important as we think it is. It does all seem a bit stupid anyway, which is another thing. But yeah, it's one of those things like <laughs> in political science. Is it, is it kind of. How active is it like right now or is it more like in five years time you're going to look back at Brexit and tell me exactly what happened in the whole situation or can you kind of explain it right now what's going on and like influence what happens next? Uh, there's, I think there's a big difference between understanding what's happening and influencing what happens next. Mm. I think that's really challenging. And so I think, you know, it seems to me that we have a pretty good understanding of what's happened and what led to Brexit. There's been a ton of work done on this, a ton of analysis. I think there's a pretty good understanding of, fairly good understanding of the implications. I mean, you know, prediction is always fraught, especially when you're talking about, you know, social phenomena, because people can make changes and they respond to events around them. But yeah, I think we can analyze it the question I think for academics is how do you have an impact on what's happening and how, how do you use your analysis or your understanding to, to shape the world, which is, Mm. I think I use that phrase because that's actually LSE's theme for its 2030 strategy. But I think that's exactly what academics everywhere are really usually trying to do or often trying to do is to shape the world, especially in social sciences. Yeah. And think about how, how you can actually use all of your time and effort, you know, the work that you've put into analyzing the situation, how can you translate that into something that's useful for people who are not in academia or not in the classroom, just learning about something for its own sake, but are actually trying to apply the knowledge in some way. And so, I don't know, influence is challenging. I mean, that some people are very good at it because they're, they're good at sort of communicating their ideas to to the public and to making it interesting to people and they get into good consulting positions with governments or whatever and they have the opportunity to really to kind of direct aspects of an issue but actually making mass change is very hard yeah yeah so it's quite a few things and if you can yeah. kind of get some more influence and learn to like have a say is really useful and then just connections and network is such a huge thing so i am um, for my studies uh, like my thesis was on like plant engineering and like using um if you could plant all the crops with like just one percent higher reflectivity of just like infrared 
you could reduce um, summertime temperatures by one degree. Like really cool wow. stuff. And but I just had no idea how to like get people to actually adopt that or something like how am I going to suddenly make a farm? It's just like a huge disconnect. And it was just like, well, mm. I could just study this some more and like, what's the point of that? So I like you know, went to the rest of the world and did other things. I was running an environmental business anyway at the time. So I just carried on with that. Right. But then literally to the last two days, I've been at a thing called Fino Hack that was run by Bayer. We were basically like helping them come up with solutions for more faster phenotyping and cheaper things and just like cool wow. machine learning hackathon things. But like I now know the head of innovation of Bayer. And like if I knew him 10 years ago when I was doing stuff, that would have been really cool. But um, yeah, I'm actually talking to him about that and some like other things potentially. But it's sort of funny, yeah. like, okay, it suddenly took like, eight years to suddenly start making these connections to actually kind of bring these things together and trying to make it easier for people doing research to actually connect with the people that could actually do stuff with it so i might try and get them to run some hackathons with like universities in the uk that actually doing cool research for them and stuff and that would be amazing yeah yeah, yeah. that's really great that's such a good example though of what you were talking about earlier with you know, kind of making these connections with people who are in sort of different worlds mm. to you and actually then seeing the relationship and how you can work together to achieve something new. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah so hopefully some news will come out on the podcast in the future about that, but we'll see what happens. Oh, very exciting. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. But uh, yeah, back to political science and things. So what's yeah. um, like, do you have a favorite area of interest and in what, what kind of things have you been writing about in your papers? Well, my area of expertise uh, relates to global environmental negotiations and specifically chemicals, actually. So I'm very interested in the way that states come together to deal with problems that are global in nature in particular. So what the subject of my thesis was persistent organic pollutants. And this is a category of chemicals that if they, they have certain characteristics, one of which is long-range environmental transport, which means if they're used in one part of the world, then they're carried on air and water currents all around the world. And so you can't actually manage this through domestic or regional regulation. You literally need a global environmental agreement because you have to get everybody cooperating to agree that you know certain chemicals are actually POPs, persistent organic pollutants are POPs, and you know, warrant global action because they pose a threat to human health in the environment. And so that's, that's one of the areas that I, I work on. I also look at a lot of agricultural chemicals. Um, I've worked on, I covered through my work with the International Institute for Sustainable Development, the creation of the Minamata Convention on Mercury, which is the newest global environmental agreement to deal with mercury pollution. That was absolutely fascinating. So that's, that's my area of, of expertise from a political science perspective. Cool. Okay, so yeah, before um, we just gloss over these things, so what are the sort of like, the things that you're trying to change more specifically in like, what are the policies policies that you're suggesting happen around like POPs, the persistent organic pollutants? And what was like the conclusion that you drew in your papers that saying this is what's got to change? Like, these are the people that need to do stuff for? Well, I mean, I think, a lot of the work that I do with IISD, which is separate to my work from LSE, is actually increasing the transparency of negotiations. So basically, in that role as a writer and editor for the Earth Negotiations Bulletin, we cover the, the negotiations, we summarize what's happening, 
and we analyze the implications of each meeting. And the ENB reports are read mainly by policymakers and, and lots of academics who are also working on these issues. But so they are used by people actually engaged in the negotiations or who are following them from afar. And I think in that work, the goal is to help people understand what's happening in the negotiations on a day-to-day -day basis so that they can engage more effectively in the negotiations. And then at the end with the analysis to understand what this means for the next meeting in the process. You know, where, where are we now that this meeting has finished? What are the decisions that were taken? Why do they matter? What does it mean, essentially? In my research, which has been very much on the back burner since I've started working with LSE 100, because that takes 110% yeah. of my time. <laughs> but in, in my research, I've been quite interested in the way that the institutions are set up to be effective, because there's a lot, I mean, it's an amazing project. I think these international agreements are just incredible because they bring all of these people to the table to work on the basis of consensus for the most part, to share their interests. And they have, I mean, on a global scale, you have all of these different states and stakeholders with a whole range of interests that often don't translate across boundaries. I mean, people have different conflicting interests and they have to come to agreement on what to do. And I think the very fact that you have an institution that facilitates that is a good thing. And so the work that I do is usually around looking at aspects of those institutions and seeing where you can kind of strengthen them, where are their challenges and how can they, what lessons can we learn from successes mm. and apply in other fora and what are the challenges that need to be addressed to kind of make sure that these are sustainable institutions that can continue to be effective, can either increase their effectiveness or, or continue to function. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating actually. So what would you say have been some of the le biggest lessons from successes that might be taken forwards? Oh gosh. I mean, there are so many. I think, you know, one of the big, broad, almost generic lessons is that people need to approach these negotiations openly and sincerely. And when you have people who are not engaging with good intentions, <laughs> it can derail a process because most of the decision-making is based on consensus. If you have people who are, just going to object because they're prioritizing their economic interests or whatever other interests they might have, they can completely derail these institutions. So in a sense, they're quite fragile because they can action can be blocked by a very, very small number of people or states. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that's not surprising, but that's something that has to be dealt with. And I think we're seeing that with the Rotterdam Convention on Prior Informed Consent, for example. There are a number of chemicals that there are certain criteria for listing in the Rotterdam Convention. And the decision has been taken that the chemicals meet the criteria, and yet the countries can't agree to actually list them. So they've meet the criteria for listing, and that's been decided. But actually listing them has been blocked by a small number of countries who have economic interests in the chemicals and are afraid that by listing them in the Rotterdam Convention, those economic interests will be harmed. And so I think that one of the lessons is very much, I, I don't know how you solve that. That's an intractable, not an intractable problem, but that's a very serious problem that threatens the future of the Rotterdam Convention. And I think it's going to be very interesting to do more analysis of that and see, is there a way in which these, these issues can be overcome one way or another? So I think sort of sincere engagement and willingness to, to compromise and to work 
openly and constructively with other people is essential. And if you don't have that, then there's almost no point in having an institution. One of the papers that I wrote with Pia Kohler a number of years ago was about the success that the Minamata Convention parties had in establishing a mechanism related to compliance. And so that's establishing a compliance mechanism is really important to a lot of these institutions because you need something that is going to ensure that people are actually upholding their obligations. So when they're parties, they sign on to the convention and then they agree to implement it. And if they're not, a compliance mechanism, which doesn't almost shouldn't be punitive, but can be quite facilitative and help countries comply is really important to the success. And yet, in a number of conventions, they've been unable to achieve consensus. So one of the papers that Pia and I wrote was about how, how this was achieved in the Minamata Convention and how it might be achieved elsewhere. And as yet, it has not been. <laughs> I mean, they, these other, these other um, agreements are still really struggling to achieve consensus. So yeah, yeah. well, to a greater or lesser extent, to a greater or lesser extent. So, yeah. Yeah. Compliance is the funny ones. And, it's much easier. Like I started using. Um, have you heard of stick? It's no, like what's stick? For, so you you say you put a goal, and then like mm. you kind of put in money to like an anti charity or something, and then if you haven't hit a goal for that week, it sends your money to the thing that you don't want it to happen. So I said I was going to write for two hours every morning each day, and if not, it sends fifty dollars to like this environmental alliance that is like mm. speaking like shit about the environment and sort of debunking everything, and so. It's kind of in my incentive to definitely like write for two hours every day and actually do this thing. And um, I have heard of this actually, and yeah, it's, it's quite actually, effective, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's very easy for me to just like decide on something for myself and like agree to it. Whereas trying to get a bunch of countries who agree to like something that would be bad to happen to them if they didn't do this thing that they maybe oh, yeah. you know, 100% want to do anyway is much harder suddenly. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's yeah. yeah, exactly. So you have chosen something for yourself that is a punitive. A mechanism to make you comply yeah <laughs> but most yeah most countries are not going to agree to that and it, it is interesting one of the arguments that's often made is that a lot of developing countries often feel like developed countries are sort of imposing an agenda mm. on the developing countries and are just loading them down with more and more obligations and aren't necessarily giving them the agreed financial support or technical assistance that they need to actually comply. And so they say, well, why should we establish a compliance mechanism that's going to be bad for us, you know, if we're not actually getting the money that we need to implement these obligations, which suit your agenda. So, I mean, so it's, it's tricky. And I think, again, understanding the best negotiators are the ones who can really step back and analyze the whole system. They can look at the entire puzzle and they can see all the pieces and what all the different interests are and they can sincerely engage with that. And also they establish trust and, and you know, that's deserved. <laughs> you know, they, they prove themselves to be people who can listen and who understand and who are seeking an outcome that is better for everyone. Those are the best negotiators. And the ones who kind of go in just focused on their own country's interests and without listening and without engaging constructively tend to be a lot less effective. Yes, yeah, like really good principles for life and things. And yes. <laughs> yeah. Listen, do your homework, <laughs> you know, be prepared, understand the issues and then go in and with an open mind and, and, you know, understand what your goals are, but also understand what other people's goals are and yeah, yeah, have so a shot at achieving an outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Most likely to have actually going to work. useful to you than just trying to only think about yourself and 
say yeah, it's like a meta lesson for life and everything really yeah absolutely um, absolutely yeah well they were slightly backtracking i think sounds like it would be really useful if you had some people that were like complete experts in like behavior change and psychology isn't yeah it's a whole different field but if someone came from that field having done like 10 years of intellect political science and then that was actually sort of there like that sounds like they could be really really effective in sort of coming up with cool ideas and things absolutely yeah, yeah. i think absolutely you could do a really interesting paper i think or a, an interesting yeah, analysis of some of these problems if you got people maybe from management and from yeah, yeah somebody yeah. from a behavioral psychology background behavioral economics background yeah. for sure you know there are lots of different and the political science background who can kind of analyze the institution and the rules and things like that that i mean yeah, definitely could be a really good study so. yeah cool yeah I was, could i wanted to do something around that to do with like environment and like so the way we think about it and how we can sort of use policies to help that because of um yeah yeah i just got super into like psychology and things so that was my minor at uni yeah and oh, right um, okay yeah, yeah. so right, the, the podcast comes from the growth mindset and stuff and but i've been read like sort of 30 books over the last two years on like behavior change and psychology and things and it suddenly gave me loads of ideas around climate change and stuff and like okay why aren't we applying this stuff to the things that are going on because there's loads of reasons of the way we think the way we do, but we could think much better about it and fundamentally just act more sensibly if we just had these frameworks around us that made us think correctly. So I kind of want to put some more like papers together with like yeah. behavior change people and to present the problems that we have and actually sort of see how we can sort of solve them more fundamentally. Because I've, I've written like, I've read a really interesting paper. It's had like some of like the leading machine learning experts and, just went through and like analyzed like about a hundred different ideas of how machine learning can help uh, the environment and the cool like potential for stuff. And it's like, well, why don't we have one on from like all the behavior change experts on how this can help the environment? Because yeah, the machine learning paper starts with like these are some great ideas, but fundamentally we still need to like want to do them and like humans actually want to need to adopt them. And so yeah. still the behavior and like how we think is like still the first fundamental thing that needs to be changed. Yeah. And so it seems like the most important thing to fix actually is like our thoughts and thinking around it. So, but I, I think there's a question about whether there is a correct answer or a right way to understand the problem. Oh, you know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think, there's yeah. ways to make us think more appropriately about stuff, as in, you know, like how you just you just think stupid things and like you can prioritize something that's like really not that important. Like, do I say five p on this like can of tomatoes versus this other? Oh. When you've got like some much bigger things going on in your life about money but why do you like care about that it's the same that we kind of we just care about like slightly the wrong things when it comes to the environment and stuff and we just we just yeah. aren't aware properly as how to think about stuff so how to actually just make clearer thinking and stuff is just there's so many massive wins around that yeah certainly there's some so, really yeah. interesting insights from prospect theory that kind of relate yeah. to that example and Definitely. yeah but i i do think i guess there's a lot of scope for critical thinking which is what i guess everybody mm. tries to teach whether you're you know starting at a young age hopefully so yeah. if people are able to think critically about different issues and that if you're thinking critically then you're inherently i hope open to different perspectives and are able to evaluate different arguments and kind of adapt and and change and in your field um, or your minor yeah. in in psychology there's an awful lot about why we get quite attached to ideas and and the kind of information that we receive what we actually process and what we dismiss and don't actually process because it kind of fits with pre-existing understandings of the world yeah, and preferences yeah. and things. Yeah. I mean, that's all. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. 
we can't know it all, but we can at least learn how to kind of analyze issues or, or be open and practice being open and, and thinking critically about different things, mm. which will, I mean, that's, that's a huge step in the right direction, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but we haven't spoken too much about the current LSD100s and what does the course actually deliver to students exactly? Because it's, it's mm. quite well renowned within its field now, from what I've read. And so what's sort of the point of the course? Why do you guys teach it? That's a great question. So LSE 100 was established back in 2010 in response to some thinking that the very narrow kind of specialist degrees that most students in, well, at LSE and other UK institutions were studying were producing students who are very competent, very good in their fields, but really they needed a broader education. They needed the chance to, to think more creatively, maybe to be exposed to other ideas, other perspectives. And in doing so, I mean, first of all, that makes you sort of more aware of the assumptions that underpin your own, your own mm -hmm. discipline, but also makes you aware of the other kinds of information out there, the other ways of seeing issues, and makes you more open to and able to collaborate with people with different perspectives. And so the idea was to kind of broaden and deepen students' understanding of kind of the range of social science perspectives. And so what we're aiming to do in LSE 100 is to give students this exposure to a range of ways of analyzing complex problems, kind of give them more tools for doing that, for carrying out that analysis. Also help them, and we do a lot of group work a lot of collaboration and the idea is to to kind of give students a chance to work in in teams kind of identifying their own strengths and i think building their confidence in the process also recognizing the strengths that others have and being able to kind of draw on those to produce something that's greater than the sum of its parts so i mean my personal goal for lse 100 is just to give students a lot more exposure to interesting ideas yeah, yeah and yeah, issues right. and let them engage with it let them take some risks do things that they you know hadn't thought they wanted to do or maybe identify things that they didn't know they were good at in a fairly i mean i hope that you know students don't feel too stressed <laughs> by yeah. being pushed beyond their comfort zone but that is the idea is to actually push people beyond their comfort zone and let them let them try out some new things. And I, yeah. the most rewarding thing for me is when students all of a sudden discover they're good at something that they didn't know that they would be good at or they like something that they didn't think they would be interested in. I always feel like that's a huge victory. And, and yeah, it's really nice. Happy. Yeah. Job done, going home. <laughs> awesome. so, yeah. Yeah, cool. It ties a lot into sort of what we just spoke about half yeah. of the time on the podcast just now. And also ties into, I often ask people what's like the kindest thing that's ever happened to them. And um, quite often it's like, being given the chance to do something that they weren't quite ready for or something that challenged them, but like the opportunity to like fail and like learn to do something better. And it sounds like you're giving people like a really good platform to actually sort of try and do, do things they didn't think they could do and actually find that they do have abilities that no one was ever going to like give to them normally. And so, yeah, it sounds really, really nice. I hope so. I hope that's what our students are getting out of it. I mean, that mm. would be wonderful, but I feel like that is what university is for. I mean, mm. for me that, you know, that is, this is the time. I mean, your whole life is the time, but, you know, especially now in a very concentrated way, this is the time to be exploring and trying out new things and, you know, yeah, just yeah. kind of seeing what you're good at and what you like and what you want to pursue. So LSE 100 is one way that LSE does that. So. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool. And then what would you say is like, sort of 
the students that do really well on the course, what is it you think that they bring that students that don't bring? Okay, the students who do really well on the course, they do well for a range of reasons. Sometimes the students who do really well on the course bring a level of confidence into it, so they're more open to the growth mindset. They're mm. more open <laughs> to learning new things, and they're taking chances and exploring, right? They're not too afraid of taking risks. And I think the students who sometimes don't do as well are a bit overwhelmed and a bit stressed and are a little bit afraid of being pushed into something that they, you know, was not their specialist degree. Hmm. And of course, you have the more basic things. The students who do well on the course are the ones who work for it, who do the reading, who study, who engage in, in you know, they listen. It's not necessarily the ones who talk the most or anything like that, you know, but they're the ones who are really engaging and participating in the class and they're, they're learning. And the ones who don't do well are the ones who, who don't try. And so... Yeah. You know, <laughs> but that's that's kind of true everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah, it's another one of those like meta life principles, really. Is it? it really is. Yeah, it is absolutely. So yeah. cool. All right, then. Is there anything that you would have liked to have spoken about that I haven't asked you about? I feel like there are probably a lot of things we could have yeah. talked about. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, I guess no. I don't think so. I, I think it's. I don't know. There's so many different things. I mean, I think it's all kind of come together in this very interesting way, though, hasn't it? We've kind of touched mm. on the same thing yeah, sort of like, over and over. So. It's, it's been quite a good, like, unifying message, despite you being like, I've got no unifying message to talk about. I have <laughs> no unifying message. <laughs> You've got yeah, a really good one, I think. That is quite funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it is interesting how, how much of what we've talked about actually applies to kind of life in general mm. and, and, and to the growth mindset. You yeah, know, definitely. This idea of being open and exploring and and working for things, I think, it's a very, very interesting concept and definitely a good one that we should all be applying to our own lives. So. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And so it's nice the way it kind of comes out when just initially just asking you like your life story in three minutes, and then just trying to like unpack different things, and then something like, <laughs> oh, actually, we got all these principles coming out of it. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, that is kind of yeah. cool. But yeah. Anyway, so the last few questions is, what is the kindest thing that someone's done for you? Oh, gosh, that's such a hard question. I've had so many people in my life at different stages who've done such kind things for me. I think one of the most meaningful things that I think anyone has ever done for me was when I was in college and I had a, I had a volunteer requirement actually as part of my undergraduate. And I ended up volunteering with this woman who lived in a retirement home across the street from Guilford. Her name was Helen Peterson, Mrs. Peterson, and she had lost most of her vision. And so my job was to go over, she was the keeper of the woods. So she maintained the trails and sort of planted all of the wildflowers and things. And I was just the her hands basically she would tell me what to do and I would I would sit there and do it and I think she gave the opportunity to work with her was very meaningful to me I really enjoyed all of that time and got to know her very well and she became a very dear friend and I think she always had so much confidence in me and kept telling people that I was going to go do a PhD <laughs> And I think when I actually made the decision to go do it, I just thought I was so motivated by her just, you know, just flat expectation that of course you're going to do this thing. And I think in a way that was one of the kind of things that anybody has ever done for me because it really gave me a lot of affirmation and confidence that this was the right path. 
for me. And it was, I think it was the right path for me. And uh, I'm very happy with where I've ended up to date. <laughs> yes, so. it's really nice when you sort of, you're not sure about doing something, but someone takes it much more seriously than you do. And you kind of yes. feel a bit like, you know, oh, you're going to be this person that does this thing. And they're like, am I? Oh, okay. Really? And, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, really nice. it's really nice when somebody has that kind of confidence and, and kind of certainty that you can do this thing. And it's, mm. yeah, it's really nice. It may, it can make a, a huge difference, I think, in decision making. Yeah, cool. That's, that's nice to hear. And um, I definitely, I find that I sort of, I try to do that with people when they're all kind of talking about things they might do. And I was like, yeah, let's make this happen and stuff. Whereas I find like, yeah. I talk to my parents about like maybe doing an idea like, oh yeah, Sam, maybe just get a normal job. And I'm like, oh guys, <laughs> you want a normal job. Why aren't you pushing this me? Is what, this is why I think whenever I have big ideas, I try not to tell people about them because yeah. if somebody responds sort of like negatively, that. then I, even if I think, okay, I don't, even if I think that was still a really good idea, it takes the wind out of your sails a little bit and it maybe brings you back to earth when you don't need to be brought back to earth. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think it's like a challenge in life. So I want to be the, the kind of person that people feel they, they can come to with like big ideas. I think. Yes. Nice. Oh, that's good. That's a, see, that's a gift. That's a gift yeah. of giving other people that's really valuable. Cool. Okay, and then another question is, what's one of the earliest memories that you've have available to you right now it doesn't have to be the earliest memory but like something vivid i remember going to the woods with my mom and my little brother and we were playing around in the creek and i think my brother and i were pretending we were wizards or something and we lived in the creek and i don't know i mean i love that mm. and just the memory makes me really happy thinking of kind of poking around in the river with a stick and like just you know climbing around on bridges and like these old wooden bridges in the forestry yeah, that's the memory that comes to mind when we're very young. But yeah. just having that freedom to just sort of run around and do whatever we wanted. Cool. I'm sure it was very yeah. relaxing for my mom who just had to yeah. let us kind of go and she didn't, <laughs> she could just watch us. You think like if you have kids, you'll go live in the countryside again? Oh, that's such a hard question. I, regardless of whether I have kids, I think I will end up living in the countryside regardless, no matter what eventually maybe not in the uk maybe in yeah. the us but yes see this is my big my big dream actually which mm. nobody can bring me back to earth about <laughs> but yeah i think yeah. I, I would very much no, like to end happen. up in the yeah we're gonna make Ooh. it happen absolutely yeah. i think um living out in the wilderness somewhere is definitely where i want to end up at some point and i would love to combine that sort of work with my environmental work and education in some way. I think that would be absolutely a dream come true, but I don't see that happening in the very near future. That's a, that's yeah. a very long-term plan, very long-term mm. plan, but I would, yeah. I would enjoy that. It's good day. Cause I am, um, I know, just was hiking along this morning today and like in the middle of Israel, it turns out it's actually quite nice. Like uh, I sort of always, always imagined Israel would be more like a desert or something. And it's, yeah. it's not, it's actually plants and stuff everywhere. But um, is it I was, amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I was definitely feeling kind of like I was actually in touch with your life again, and that you sort of yeah. you get so fixated in like everything that's going on when you're kind of in London, you can never quite leave or whatever, and you're just always working and like stuck in a city. And then it's like actually, I don't know why all these things that I kind of constantly think is important is that important. Like, why am I doing all this stuff? And yeah, sort of being me and like doing things like, yeah. like actual reality is maybe different. And oh, yeah, 
and getting that change in perspective, which you can get sometimes from traveling, sometimes from mm. going to the woods, maybe even doing something more local, but just getting out of your routine. But that change in perspective is so freeing, isn't it? I yeah, mean, it's just yeah. you can let go of all these things that were really bothering you and so stressful or so worrying or consuming, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, not nearly as worried about that as I thought I was. So, yeah, oh, that's yeah. great that you're having that opportunity. That sounds really wonderful. Yeah, thanks. This has been good. Yeah, it sounds cool. really good. And um, yeah, I'll uh, stay in touch, I think, on different things. Stephanie has some. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I'll be listening to your podcast, obviously. I really enjoy yeah. it. Oh, um, so that's really good to hear. It's, it's, um, it's, it's so interesting. It kind of generally always tell people to like niche in things. People come to me about like podcasting and stuff and try and like pick a specific topic. But I've definitely gone very non specific on just talking about anything that's interesting and attempting to maybe tie it into the growth mindset at some point in the conversation. But yeah. I love it. I don't know. Yeah. I thought, you know, it's funny because I think the first, I've forgotten everybody's names now because I've, yeah, yeah, sure. It's been a couple of weeks since I've listened to it, but the first one was the guy who was in charge of the national park. Oh, yeah, yeah. Niall. Loved yeah. that. Yeah, he, so he was so interesting. cool. He was so cool. I really enjoyed what he had to say. It was really interesting. And then the next one I listened to was the woman who's the coach for women entrepreneurs and yeah. I loved that as well and I actually went and checked out her website afterwards and I was like yeah. it's so interesting and I've referred a couple of colleagues to her website now because I was wow. like oh, her, her information was so interesting and it wasn't yeah. because I was specifically looking for in, in either case I wasn't you know I just wanted to hear your podcast and, and yeah. I just thought they were both so good so I think your approach is is right on I mean yeah it's it's more of the slow game isn't it's not so easy to say why anyone should listen to any one specific episode it's sort of like if you're just going to go through and look for like one that sounds amazing it's kind of hard to see but if you just listen to all of them like actually there's just really fascinating stuff going on in the world around you and over people's brains and things so yeah very very different guests and lots of interesting things so and i think it's sort of i guess i find i get a bit bored about with some podcasts that i'll listen to for a bit and they're like oh this is a super interesting like, angle on things and then yeah. to like a few episodes you'll be like okay i kind of heard most of yeah. what the podcast is going to be like so i sort I've of done that too yeah. yeah and also i guess just for myself like i kind of wanted to be motivated to keep on doing this and it's sort of really nice to be like wherever i'm at i can always find whatever really interests me and just go talk to people about it so i'm here in israel yeah. and finding people doing crazy shit doing stuff with Palestine awesome. or whatever. it's like yeah i can interview yeah. them that's totally within the remit of my podcast whereas if i was oh, only yeah. interviewing business leaders i'd be kind of stuck with just business leaders and yeah it's not, no i think it's, it's, it's but like not so totally yeah. engaging. I, I mean i like hearing business leaders sometimes but that's yeah, exactly yeah, the sort yeah, of podcast that i kind of stop it, i'm not always interested week after yeah. week yeah yeah exactly so yeah. okay so that's good feedback thanks um <laughs> you're welcome it's a good podcast it's really interesting so. cool awesome okay, yeah is there any questions you want to ask me before we finish no i don't think so i mean keep me posted i hope you got something useful out of this i, oh, yeah, I don't know <laughs> i hope it was uh, somehow helpful i mean i had no idea really about like policy change and all this stuff and how like, mm. it actually kind of happened so it's actually really fascinating to like learn about and sort of links into the stuff that I kind of want to be doing with maybe putting like a paper together on scientists like maybe I actually want to talk to you as well on that and like yeah oh that was so that was actually even more more specifically my thesis looked at the role of science and scientists in chemical regulation yeah no it's fine but like well I haven't I actually 
was so burned out after my thesis and I don't think this is uncommon, but I couldn't deal with it. And I did not even turn it into a, into articles. I just left it, which was so dumb. Like, you know, I yeah. look back and I think that was so short sighted, but I was just so done with it. And I was really wanting to move on to other things, but that would have been such an easy win. And I think the research was actually really interesting and it's only available. Mm -hmm. It's online and you can see it. It's publicly available online for anybody, but it wasn't, it's not published in an academic journal. It's just there on, in the LSE library. Yeah. But anyway, that, that was super interesting. Like the actual role of science and the way that economic interests really kind of factor in much earlier than, than we mm -hmm. like to think. And we all kind of tell the story for the sake of kind of preserving the credibility of these institutions that you can separate science from politics and economics when in fact, you really cannot at all. And the fact that I think, I think most people know that and kind of would acknowledge that, but you can't publicly deal with that without sort of undermining the credibility or potentially undermining the credibility of these institutions because people would say, oh, well, this isn't, this isn't legit anymore. But actually, you know, everybody comes to the table with particular interests. It informs the way that people interpret information or what they want to do, you know, what, what their policy goals are and how they approach that. So hmm. you can okay. read my thesis if you want. Yeah, it's very long. I don't recommend trying to, even my mom tried. Actually, my mom, you know. No, maybe I'll read the abstract. <laughs> my mom, <laughs> my mom yeah. tried and she got to like the end of the first chapter and I think she gave up. <laughs> yeah, that's the point of a problem with like PhDs is you have to write so much stuff and it's like, oh. yeah. Oh. They're not written to be exciting, sadly. Mm. So. Oh, it does sound really interesting. Maybe I'll uh, yeah. look through the uh, <laughs> summary and work out which are the best, most useful pages, perhaps. You know, maybe I, maybe, the conclusion, maybe the I don't know. Probably the conclusion is. Yeah. I'm not sure. Cool. I didn't, oh, I haven't looked at it. So anyway, yeah. But it was nice chatting with you. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for inviting me to do this. I really appreciate oh, no. it. Thanks so much Very for nice. making the time. Good. Well, do keep in touch and um, mm. yeah, let me know how things are going. You know, sure. if I can do anything to help you at any point, just let me know. So. Right. Great. I'll um, definitely. And if you ever have any big goals that you want to go to someone about, then I'm the guy. <laughs> yes, I will. I'm like, should I do this? And you'll say, yes. Yep. <laughs> yes, you should move to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so, cool. I like I'll that. Come part. visit. That sounds good. There you go. Nice. All right. <laughs> It'll be a cool place, I promise. So. Awesome. Anyway, okay. Well, enjoy the rest of your time in Israel. Yeah, will do. Okay. Enjoy. Talk to you soon, then. You've just listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram at Sam Jam Snaps. Show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website growthmindsetpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Give yourself a big hug from me. If you're with a friend, give them a hug as well. And I hope you enjoy your next podcast.